Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, November 21st, 2021. And we wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving in this upcoming week. Yeah, the whole week. Just happy Thanksgiving prep. Yes. Today on the show, we are looking at all five shows. They were on today. And there was, I don't know, my shows were kind of interesting in that they arranged a whole wide range of topics. Same here. My shows looked at the Rittinghouse verdict from Wisconsin. It looked at a little bit about the economy, a little bit about COVID, a random politics campaign stuff. It was a real like wishwash of topics. Yeah. In fact, I'm pretty much had all those topics as well. Quite a range. But which shows did you look at today? Right. So I looked at this week, which was hosted by Martha Raddatz today. I looked at State of the Union, which was hosted by Dana Bash today. And I looked at Meet the Press, which was with Chuck Todd. I looked at the F shows, Face the Nation and Fox News Sunday, but they were not F rated, I would say. They were X rated today. (laughs) (laughs) How badly do you miss ratings, Brendan? No, ratings are in the past. I don't even know what you're talking about. What are ratings? Oh my gosh. I know in the back of your mind you have a grade for that. That's (laughs) fine. But to start us off, as always, quality questionable you were gonna say highlight low light i know i was looking at the agenda this is an old agenda template it's not highlight low light quality questionable brendan what are you noting today so i wanted to highlight in my quality section this interesting moment with senator kirsten gillibrand she is the senator from the state of new york democratic senator she was speaking with margaret brennan on face the nation about the build back better agenda now this was the bill that was passed through the House finally on this last Friday, the basically one of the pillars of the Biden administration's legislative agenda, representing tons of new social spending programs as well as climate action. But it still has to go through the Senate, has to get through Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And so Senator Gillibrand was talking with Margaret Brennan about some of those key issues that she's trying to get past Senator Manchin's essentially veto pen. This was... He doesn't have a real veto. It's just the Democrats need his vote. Exactly. So he's being treated that way. Right. And so that's what made this... You know, know, constitutionally, he does not have veto power. Correct. Nor does any senator. Correct, seemingly. (laughs) Supposedly. (laughs) But that's what made this a very interesting conversation because we don't often see this type of situation where Senator Gillibrand is talking about how she's working around the clock to convince Senator Manchin to support, in this case, paid family leave. 
Take a listen to this exchange. So the proposal as it stands now, it would cost $200 billion over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Senator Manchin has also said he's worried about so, uh, Social Security and, and its sustaining. When you say earned benefit, how, how would you actually make this happen? So um, I want to work with Senator Manchin on some ideas he has. He likes employer-employee contribution systems. A lot of states around the country already have that through um, unemployment insurance, through disability insurance. Um, There's ways we might be able to create this program. Like the state of New York. Correct. And what uh, Senator Manchin is doing right now is he's approving every aspect of the Build Back Better proposal about how to pay for it. So he's in the driver's seat on how to pay for these proposals. And so I'm just hopeful that he can remain open-minded to include some provisions for paid leave because this is the only moment to get paid leave done. Um, the bipartisan ideas he have, he has, they will not come to fruition with the Republican senators that are interested in paid leave today because they don't, they don't, they aren't interested today in a universal plan that's an earned benefit because I've spoken to them. For you. So that's why I think for Senator Manchin, Mm -hmm. now is the time. If he has a vision for what he wants to do, putting it in this demo only proposal is the only opportunity in my, in my opinion. So this is a fascinating explanation from Senator Gillibrand. Earlier in the interview, she explains the work she's been doing trying to convince Senator Manchin to actually get behind paid family leave, which he was very skeptical of from the beginning. But here she's saying, look, Senator Manchin, if you want your views to be actual law, then this is the time to do it. You can't wait, say you're going to wait for bipartisan support from this because the senators the Republican senators who support paid family leave don't like your idea. So this is your only chance. If you want it to happen, it's got to happen just with the Democrats in this moment. And that's what she's pressing for. So what I liked about this discussion was Margaret Brennan is serious about this topic. She understands it inside and out. She's asking critical, insightful questions. Senator Gillibrand is serious about this topic. She's talking about her singular personal work trying to sway and convince a single senator. And we can understand what the process really is here, at least from her perspective. It's a unique look at someone's effort on Capitol Hill to convince someone else of something truly important. And Senator Gillibrand seems to be being very transparent about that process. And it's not often that we get to see this. You know, we really, I feel like, are getting an insight into what's going on here. Yeah, and it's nice to see someone willing to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Just, like, the transparency of it all, and that's like, yeah, it's one person that we're trying to convince. And we haven't seen that transparency on so many other topics. Absolutely. Particularly related to Senator Manchin. Like, we don't know where things are going, where things are coming from. We hear him going to the White House from time to time to meet with President Biden, but we don't know what the substance of those meetings truly are. And here is Senator Gillibrand saying, here's the substance of our conversations on this, and I'm working on it. She also noted that she expects and hopes that Senator Manchin will support this with a vote within, I think she said, the next two to three weeks. So that gives us a little sense of the timeline for passage. That's true. That's an interesting point, which, you know, Democrats are saying they're going to get this done before the end of the year. So that kind of jives. Exactly. Naomi, what was your quality or questionable today? So I had a quality moment, moments. I think it was last week, maybe it was 
the last couple weeks. I don't know. At some point in the last few weeks, I was ranting because I felt like the shows weren't doing a very good job about talking about the economy. Specifically, they were talking in like generalizations and weren't talking to people affected by inflation or about just the turbulence in the economy or really enough experts. And Martha Raddatz did exactly that. <laughs> of course, of course. So if the, anyone was going to do it, it would probably I be her. Know, particularly I know. talking to real people. Exactly. So the first couple of clips here, you're going to hear her talking to some some women in the Midwest. And then um, I'll come back and introduce the experts that she talks to. Consumer prices have jumped 6.2% since last year, a 30-year high, with the cost of groceries up 5.4% overall. Some items like beef and bacon surging by more than 20%. I traveled to Kansas City to see how the price hikes are affecting people ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. Letha McFadden James and her husband have four kids at home, and although she and her husband both work, it's getting harder and harder to put food on the table. You have to check every single price. Yes, I have to. One-time staples, like a family-sized roll of ground beef, no longer possible. This roll, at one point, was $18.67. This roll has went up to $30.83. Talitha's typical $100 weekly budget once covered six to eight meals, but now only lasts for two to three, forcing her to forego items like meat, produce, and snacks. I don't understand how anybody's making it at this point. So what all you need, babe? Um, milk. In Kansas City, the nonprofit Operation Breakthrough is trying to ease some of the growing burden. Have you seen people who previously didn't need your help come in? You know, our average family will use a pantry about three times per month. So we're seeing that increase and then definitely seeing families that maybe didn't have a need for it having a need now and even some of our staff. That need only expected to heighten during the holidays. And as the temperatures drop, utility costs rise, boosting the price of the average utility bill from $84 to $120. And heat with, with winter coming. Well, we know heat, we know gas prices are going to be higher, obviously electrical. So just really solid details here for, about real families and real hunger organizations trying to fill a gap in terms of how people are able to make ends meet and and feed their families. I thought the specifics about how, you know, one family role, they don't really say how big the family role of ground beef is, but that's fine. A family size, a larger size of ground beef used to be $18 and now it's almost $31. You know, that's significant. It's It's just one specific example that kind of really is so much more telling than some of the other interviews we've heard where like prices are going up, groceries are going up. And then you hear the White House saying, this is transitory or wages have gone up and it's fine. You know, it's it's just so, it's very concrete. Absolutely. And I feel like not mentioned in this is that when those staples, which are real food, get expensive, it drives people towards processed foods that, maybe have tons of calories, but aren't as healthy. Sure. But well, have more stable pricing. You know, and you could do like a whole segment about this of like, then maybe some families lean on 
you know, free and reduced lunch at schools. And the schools are also affected by food supply chain issues right now. Like you could just take this one example and show all the different ways it's impacting one community or one family. So just really well done. After, immediately after this kind of tour of the Midwest uh, that Martha Raddatz did, she then talks to two experts. She talks to ABC News business correspondent Deidre Bolton, and she talks to Diane Swank, the chief economist and managing director at Grant Thornton. Welcome to you both. Deirdre, I want to start with you. People are struggling. You heard them struggling there, heading into the holiday. The White House has said this is a transitory problem, but is it more fundable, fun, fundamental? Is this going to stick around? Well, Martha, from your excellent report, I mean, we saw with those families, I mean, it's everything. It's food, it's gasoline, this 30-year high. So for them, it feels fundamental. It feels basic because it is. In speaking with economist Gregory Dacko is one of note at Oxford Economics. He does say in the next 12 months that pricing pressures should begin to come down. The logic being that some of these supply chain issues that we've been hit so hard with will begin to mitigate. And that is going to take down some of the pricing pressure. But in the near term, for the next six months, let's face it, we are all going to pay more for everything. Rent, food, gasoline, the next six months is belt tightening. And, and, and Deirdre, let's, let's talk long-term here. We've been on this kind of just-in-time manufacturing system. No overhead costs, or they're less than they were before. Uh, there are glitches in the system, obviously. If, if a chip doesn't come through, the whole line breaks down. So do we need to look at a more exactly. resilient system? Deirdre, can you take this one? Uh, of course, we sure do. This is a big, furry mess. And the whole irony of just-in-time was that it was built to be more efficient, and we are now seeing the exact opposite of that. So we are seeing industry respond. No business leader wants to go through this ever again. And we've been talking about the auto sector, how there are cars just sitting on factory floors just waiting for a chip. I mean, otherwise, the car is put together, it's ready to go to a dealership, but there's no chips, so it has to stay on the factory floor. So GM and Ford just this week announcing partnerships, strategic partnerships with U.S.-based semiconductor makers. So that is going to help alleviate. You are seeing these changes in the way that businesses make decisions, in the way that they're partnering up with other companies that are U.S.-based. TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor, makes, depending on the industry, between 25 and 50 percent of some chips that some industries use. They're building a plant right now in Arizona. Now it's going to take some time. The first chips will come off the conveyor belt 2024. Most experts say, okay, this is fantastic. Let's get more chip factories built, but let's do 10 more like this in Arizona. At least one's on the way. Do they ever define just in time, just for the audience? No, not really. <sighs> it's annoying. Yeah, but for an explanation for our listeners, yes, just in time is a manufacturing theory, philosophy, strategy to just make exactly what is being sold so you don't have to pay for storage, you don't have to pay for overhead, you don't have to pay for, you know, keeping inventory in stock waiting to then move it over. You're just kind of manufacturing for what is selling. Right. You don't need warehouses full of your product of I don't know, let's say sneakers. You know, you fill these warehouses, you got to pay for the space, you got to pay for people moving all this stuff around. And then, oh, guess what? You know, sneakers aren't in this year. It's uh, it's platform shoes. And everyone's wearing platform shoes and no one wants your sneakers. And now it's like, oh, crap. 
Now, not only do we spend all the time and energy producing these and storing these, now we might have to get rid of them or sell them for less than they're worth. And so just in time was supposed to be a solution to that. You just, you know, the- it's reflecting on what was how the market, however your product was performing on the market at right. that very moment. Yeah. Someone buys something and it's like, oh, they bought a sneaker. Let's make a sneaker now. But now because of that, the examples with the cars, there are cars that are missing one small part and they're sitting in storage right. and can't because, go on market. Because there wasn't a warehouse filled with those parts just in case all the manufacturing of those of those chips broke down, which it did during COVID. So there wasn't a supply of those. And now it's taken them forever to get back up online. Yeah. So, I mean, they could be more inclusive with their language and explanation, sure. But in general, I just thought between the real people interviews and then the expert interviews... It just gave, a, I felt like, a much fuller state of the economy than we've seen in other shows. And I think it, it makes it very tangible in terms of understanding how people are feeling right now and where those anxieties can exist. Yeah, I love seeing these experts. Okay, I have to just do a little aside of my favorite analogy or example of just in time versus oh not just in time. Okay. Okay, this is from the world of fast food. All right. If you go in to like a McDonald's and you want to get a burger like a Big Mac, what you might find is that there's a bunch of Big Macs stacked up right behind the counter that were made, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, an hour ago. Who knows? They're sitting up there. You buy your Big Mac. They turn around, hand it to you. There you go. You walk off. You have your Big Mac. You go to somewhere like subway or i think i think it's actually burger king does it as well it's like you know we make it fresh for you when you order it so you know it's totally fresh but then you pay for your sandwich your your burger and you gotta wait because it's got to be made and you're waiting and you're waiting behind all the other people who are waiting it's like oh you know what having a little bit of inventory can actually be really nice when you're on the go yeah, but that's also for the Big Mac where there's they're selling really frequently. If you get the fish fillet, who knows how long that's been there. That's true. So depends on the product. But fast food, come on. We want it fast. <laughs> but Brendan, beyond the economy, what are you talking about in your segment today? So I'm going to talk about another economic issue, inflation, which is actually the same issue. <laughs> <laughs> It's different from just in time, but it is the same issue that you were just mentioning. <laughs> yes. But it's going to be from a different perspective. So I'm talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and acquittal. So let's stay on theme and keep talking about the economy first. Yeah, why not? So I'm going to talk about a little bit of what Face the Nation covered in their first segment, which was new polling from CBS News, introduced by Anthony Salvanto, as usual. And then kick it over to Fox News Sunday, where Brett Baer was standing in for Chris Wallace as the host today. And he spoke with Brian Deese, the Biden administration's director of the National Economic Council. And we've seen Brian Deese on quite a bit on the Sunday shows. And Baer had some tough questions related to Build Back Better and how it affects inflation and also how it affects the deficit. So a little bit about the deficit here as well. But let's begin with, as I mentioned, Face the Nation, Anthony Salvanto with some new polling about President Biden and how these inflationary pressures 
are affecting Biden's approval rating. And optimism was on the upswing as we headed into the summer. Views of the economy started to rise. Then as we headed into the fall and our polling, well, people started feeling the effects of inflation and views of the economy started to dip again back down to the lower level where they are today. Now, how does this relate to President Biden? Well, when you look at how people evaluate him in handling a range of issues, on handling the economy specifically, on handling inflation specifically, he's underwater at 39% on the economy, at 33% good on handling inflation. And then the kicker here, Margaret, is that when you ask people how they're evaluating Joe Biden, which criteria, they say top answers, the economy, and inflation. Anthony, just how significantly is inflation impacting Americans' lives? So first of all, people say that they notice the things they usually buy are costing more. They notice that some things are hard to get on store shelves. And then you say, well, what impact does that have on people? And for a majority, they tell us that that's either a difficulty or even a hardship. That's particularly the case for people in middle and low incomes. So what do they say they're doing about it? Well, a lot of folks say that they're cutting back, cutting back on spending, maybe holding off, buying one of those big ticket items, maybe even curtailing their holiday spending a little bit. And the other thing here, Margaret, is people know why there is inflation. They tell us they know that there are supply chain issues, that there's pent-up demand after the pandemic. So those are market forces. But as we often see in polling and opinion, even if it's market forces, people sometimes want some relief from those forces. And that's where they turn to political leaders and say they want them to do something about it, Margaret. Right. You didn't cause it, but I want you to fix it. So this is kind of like the quantitative to your qualitative report that we saw from Martha Raddatz. The thing that stood out to me here, and I did appreciate having this qualitative data presented to us, but the, there's something about the conversation and even potentially the questions that were asked in this polling about how they felt about Biden handling inflation. Because, and then we heard Margaret Brennan say, at the end there, you didn't cause it, as in Biden, didn't cause it, but I want you to fix it. So based on this conversation and the questions asked, you might walk away with the assumption that Biden really could control inflation, that he could, that he's not doing enough and that he could do more. But the truth is that our system isn't set up to provide the president with lots of controls for the issue of inflation. There was actually a really good article from CNN that was released that was kind of like an explainer article about all the different things that the Biden administration could do to deal with inflation or that could be done in general by the government to deal with inflation. And based on a few of the experts that were interviewed in this article, the conclusion was that the president can't really do much. Now, I'm going to read a little bit from this article. It's by Kevin Liptak and Matt Egan. They spoke with chief global strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, David Kelly, and he said, quote, we put all of this on the president. We put him on a pedestal and pretend he has this power that he doesn't have. This is the Federal Reserve's job. That was a quote by Kelly from J.P. Morgan. Here is a quote by Jason Furman, who served as a top economic advisor to former President Barack Obama and a professor at Harvard University. He said, quote, 
The awkward fact is inflation is the job of the Fed. Biden should be focused on other things. That's not great political advice because people are upset about inflation and they want the president to solve their problems. But the truth is, it isn't his problem to solve. And the article does a good job of explaining exactly what the Fed does related to inflation and that Biden does have a choice coming up that we could hear as early as tomorrow in whether he's going to replace the chair of the Federal Reserve. But the person who he would potentially replace him with, kind of the top candidate that everyone expects him to replace him with, is likely someone who would have a very similar perspective on inflation as the current chairman Powell, Jerome Powell does. So all of that is just to say, sure, ask in your polling whether Biden is handling inflation well, but we should not keep expecting the Biden to be like the savior for the economy on this issue because he really doesn't have a lot of control over it. And it's kind of misleading to cover the implications of inflation as purely something for Biden to do. Well, and it's also like, a global phenomenon yes yes exactly <laughs> it's reflective of the global economic conditions yeah and the other thing that bothers me here is that salvanto says in this clip quote as we often see in polling an opinion even if it's market forces people sometimes want some relief from those forces end quote well the federal government had historic relief from the pandemic provided to um, the American people time and time again throughout the, the course of this pandemic. But giving people more money because they have higher grocery bills stimulates demand, which is already hard, <laughs> which already is high for items that are in short supply. And when that happens, those items get even more expensive. So that's not really the solution. The solution is not to give people more money when things are more expensive. It's to make it so that those things are cheaper. That's really the way you got to do it. But Salvanto says people want some relief. Well, okay, fine. But that's, again, that's unreasonable. Just as it's unreasonable to expect Biden to have an instant solution for inflation. Because there isn't, there isn't one in his court necessarily. Yeah, something right that he can implement. Yeah. Or institute. Yeah. Unless, you know, we're trying to, and it doesn't seem like a lot of the media or really anyone is putting a ton of pressure on Biden to truly find an inflation hawk like Paul Volcker to bring into the Fed again. That's, I think, the, the, the really the only thing he could actually do. And it's just it's so interesting to think about the role of the president and how they respond to economic crisis you know, so many, you know, I, I think it was last week where I heard they were like, you know, inflation's killer for a president. And they, you know, they looked at Carter and, you know, other presidents that struggled with high inflation during their presidencies. And yes, Americans are going to blame their biggest frustration on the president, right? Like that's often what happens. But it's just, it's just such a reflection of like, how crappy we explain the economy in our education system and then the general understanding that people have of it. And you can probably say this on a lot of issues, but it seems particularly true for the economy when there are real limits to what the president can do. Right. Well, it goes directly into what I've been kind of complaining about for a few weeks, which is the aggrandizement of the presidency. If you just watched the Sunday shows... 
you might expect that the president truly is king, that the president is what it's all about. You know, this week, as I've been saying week after week, has been covering every little move and ripple of the economy and the country as it relates to Joe Biden, as if they are Joe Biden's biographers, as if Joe Biden is really what matters in this country beyond the country itself. Like, how does this affect Joe Biden? Is this going to affect Biden? Biden, Biden, Biden. It's like, how about how does this affect the country? That's more important than Joe Biden. Right. And also, Joe Biden doesn't have control over all these things. Like, we expect that the president does, but he doesn't. And so polling like this and conversations like this on Face the Nation can play into that expectation of the president having control that the president simply doesn't have. And then people get frustrated, right? Like, uh, they get frustrated at the president because the president doesn't do what the president promises to do because the president shouldn't really be making those promises. It's like you either have to make the presidency way more powerful or you have to stop pretending the presidency is as powerful and as important as it is. But it's not. Right. So moving on. Let's get, uh, for some reason, I kept expecting you to move on. And I'm like, no, this is my segment. This is your segment. (laughs) So on Fox News Sunday, as I mentioned, Brett Baer was interviewing Brian Deese, director of the National Economic Council. And Baer had some really tough questions for Brian Deese. I really liked how tough and specific these questions were, although I did have some issues with it. So let's begin (laughs) with one of the first questions that bear had. You know, inflation is at a 31-year high. So how can you say that this Build Back Better bill, which, as you just saw, passed the House on Friday, is not going to hurt in that way? Is How can you say it's going to lower inflation when you're pumping really trillions of dollars into the economy in just recent months? Well, there's no question inflation is high, and it's affecting American consumers and it's affecting their outlook. But that's actually why we need to move on this Build Back Better bill right now. Experts across the board have looked at it and have concluded that it won't increase inflation because it's paid for. When you pay for investments, you don't actually add aggregate demand to the economy. We saw this week two large rating firms, financial rating firms, Mitch, uh, uh, Fitch and Moody's, actually underscore that this bill won't uh, increase inflation. But what it will do is it will lower costs. Brett, this bill is going to be the biggest cost-cutting bill for working class and American families in decades in this country. And it's going to go at costs that are persistent problems for the American people in their lives. We'll lower the cost of prescription drugs, put a cap on out-of-pocket costs for drugs for seniors, and allow Medicare to finally negotiate prescription drug prices on behalf of American consumers. It will lower the cost of health care, lower the cost of housing as well, and it will get millions of Americans to work by actually addressing the costs that keep them from going to the workplace. So this is a very effective answer, I feel like, from Brian Deese in addressing the question of inflation, importantly, by acknowledging that it's a problem rather than dismissing it, but then saying, look, this thing, this bill, this proposal will not increase inflation. Here are experts that say so. And here's how it will deal with costs, which are one of the things that people are concerned about as it relates to inflation. But I want to get back to what's at the heart of this question. And at the heart of the question is kind of an equation, right? Brett Baer says, how are you going, and I'm going to quote him again now here, how can you say 
it's going to lower inflation, the bill, when you're pumping really trillions of dollars into the economy in just recent months, end quote. That's the, that's the question. So the equation is that Bear is kind of presenting, if you pump trillions of dollars into the economy, it's, we should expect it to increase inflation, not lower inflation. That's basically what Bear is saying. And it is true, as Deese goes on to acknowledge, that if you don't pay for investments in the economy, you increase aggregate demand in the economy, which can increase inflation. But this is all very complicated stuff, right? And nowhere are these basic equations of like, oh, you put money into the economy, you usually expect that to increase demand and therefore increase inflation. And so I kind of want to like ding Fox News Sunday for not explaining like how inflation works, basically, and how the federal government's investments can increase or decrease inflation, because the whole conversation depends on that assumption, right? Bear is saying, hey, we have this assumption about inflation, and how does your bill defy that assumption? And then we have Deese explaining how it defies that assumption, why it's an exception to the rule. But no one really sets up what the rule is for the audience. So we're all just kind of watching, like, if you, if you don't know what the rule is, you don't really know what's actually going on here in this in this discussion. It's also, I feel like Deese doesn't quite aptly make the distinction that the Build Back Better plan will address things that were problems before this current inflation. Like, it both has some, you know, mitigation efforts for the immediate issues and the immediate hurt, but that's not like the long-term right. game. It's That's not what it's there for. It wasn't built to deal right. with inflation. To, to, to respond to inflation concerns. Right. They're trying to, I feel like they're trying to use it as an example of, look, we are doing some things for inflation, everybody. But they're doing other things as well. I do want to point out, I, I looked for a while to find a really good nonpartisan explanation of how federal government stimulus can possibly increase inflation sometimes to like explain what the rule is in a way that the show did not do and where i found it was from the congressional research service which is absolutely excellent and a really great nonpartisan source of information and data this is a piece that they put out on january 21st of this year called fiscal policy economic effects and I'm just going to read... Just, just a bit of light reading for yes, the weekend. I'm just going to read a few sentences of this because they try to explain it very simply. And this is just on page three, which is great. Uh, they say, quote, The goal of fiscal stimulus is to increase aggregate demand within the economy. However, if fiscal stimulus is applied too aggressively or is implemented when the economy is already operating near full capacity it can result in an unsustainably large demand for goods and services that the economy is unable to supply. When the demand for goods and services is greater than the available supply, prices tend to rise, a scenario known as inflation. A rising inflation rate can introduce distortions into the economy and impose unnecessary costs on individuals and businesses, although economists generally view low and stable inflation as a sign of a well-managed economy. And then it goes on to explain some other things. But there's the basic rule, right, that putting fiscal stimulus into an economy that's already operating near capacity can raise inflation. 
And then, of course, we heard Deese explaining why that wouldn't be the case with this. So later in the interview, Brett Baer goes on and talks about other criticisms of the Build Back Better bill as it relates to a little bit inflation, but also like whether it's paid for and would affect the federal deficit. So let's hear just one clip of Deese addressing that issue. Yeah, I mean, you know that there are critics who, who really have issue with the paid for part of it. We've heard former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who also held the job you now hold with the Obama administration, express real concerns about Democrats not taking inflation seriously and only exacerbating the problem with these bills. But now you have Steve Ratner, senior advisor in the Obama administration, writing this. Build Back Better can be deemed paid for only if one embraces budget gimmicks, like assuming that some of the most important initiatives will be allowed to expire in just a few years. The result, a package that front loads spending while tax revenues arrive only over a decade. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget estimates that the plan would likely add $800 billion or more to the deficit over the next five years, exacerbating inflationary pressures. So you're saying Ratner and Summers are both wrong. Well, respectfully, uh, Larry Summers, who has been a critic of a number of the policies of this administration, has actually said that the Build Back Better bill won't increase inflation and makes much needed investments in the economy. And it has been a while in Washington since we've actually done the hard work of paying for a bill over 10 years. But that's exactly what this bill does. It has long-term investments in things like child care, lowering the cost of child care, providing preschool uh, across the country. But then it pays for those by doing long-term reforms to our tax system. For example, we would put a 15% minimum tax for the largest corporations to avoid what happens today, which is that large, very profitable companies end up paying zero in taxes. That's a permanent reform to the tax system that will generate more revenue for the long term. And so when you look at the impact of those policies in the aggregate, it would reduce the deficit by about $112 billion this decade, actually over the long term, which is where, if you really care about the fiscal uh, soundness of this country, you should be looking at the long term. In the second decade, this bill would reduce the deficit by more than $2 trillion. So I think this is a very interesting exchange. Hearing it again now, I feel like Bear missed a follow-up, which would have been, yeah, you said what it would do to the deficit over 10 years. Ratner was talking about what it would do to the deficit over five. Do you agree with his five-year projection? of what it would do. But a very interesting conversation and really good for Bear to get into some, you know, criticism and ask Deese to defend it, especially if the front-loaded spending does result in possible inflationary pressures. Although Deese said, look, a lot of these other places said that that wouldn't happen. And then Bear goes on to do something really interesting, which is comparing this situation to the tax cut bill that Republicans were arguing over in 2017, the one that they actually ended up passing. But take a listen to how he asks it. You know, Republicans, Brian, uh, argued in 2017 their tax cut bill would be paid for thanks to economic growth. And at the time, Democrats pointed to official analysis, which said otherwise. Well, now you have Republicans making that same argument that Democrats made back in 2017. So why is your argument now that the bill is paid for valid if it's the same argument the GOP was making? We're not relying on the prospect of future economic growth. We're relying on official estimates that have looked at the provisions in this bill. 
Uh, the provisions in this bill will generate tax revenue, will reduce spending across time, and those resources will be invested in things that will lower costs for families, like lower prescription drug costs and lower child care costs and lower elder care costs. That's what we're looking at, and we are relying on the experts that have studied the provisions in this bill the most closely, the Congressional Budget Office, as well as the Treasury Department. So what was missing from that question by Brett Baer conspicuously was the fact check on Republicans and their argument about their tax cut bill being paid for. It was not paid for. Brett Baer uses it as an example of what Democrats are doing as if it's a bad thing without explaining why the Republicans were wrong, which is they were lying. The tax cut bill did not pay for itself. There was a great analysis piece by the Washington Post looking at that bill and at the history of the deficit under Donald Trump. In this piece, it notes that on Fox News, Donald Trump said to Sean Hannity in July of 2018, quote, we have $21 trillion in debt. When the tax cut bill really kicks in, we'll start paying off that debt like it's water. Okay. But in 2018, the CBO estimated that the tax cut bill would increase deficits by $1.9 trillion over 11 years. And rather than pay off that debt like water, during the Trump administration, at the end of that administration, the national debt had increased from $19 trillion when Trump was sworn in to $27 trillion, up nearly 40%. Now, some of that was pandemic-related, but as the CBO noted, close to $2 trillion of that was just from the tax cuts that were 100% not paid for. But Bear doesn't mention that. Small details. He's like, you're doing the same thing Republicans did. But he doesn't say that the Republicans were wrong. Republicans were wrong. Dees could have just say, yeah, sure, we are. Big deal. You know what I mean? Like, he really missed that. Really, really missed that. Just as he missed explaining what government spending is expected to do to inflation. Which gets me thinking, like, what do you think was the goal of Deese going on the show? Like, who do you think he was trying to convince? Deese? Correct. I think he's trying to reach the audience, you know? It's an important audience. But, it's on a major network. But, like, do you think the audience is Washington stakeholders? Or do you think the audience is kind of the average American trying to plug in and trying to understand what's happening in Washington? I think Deese is speaking to average Americans here, mm. especially as he keeps talking about like, low, well, I think that and he's speaking to senators, right? He's, ta he's talking to both of them, talking about lowering the costs to the average American. He's trying to reinforce what they learned from the CBO and reinforce what they've heard from these analyst firms saying it's not going to increase inflation. So yeah, I think he's speaking to Senate Democrats who need to pass this bill. And I think he's speaking to the public to try to sell it. Interesting. But, Naomi, things happened beyond the world of inflation, I think, on the Sunday shows. And you're going to talk about them. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Uh, so for full disclosure about kind of how I've been looking at this case or the verdict that came in. This is one of those instances where it's I, f I find covering or reading about the current event like very draining and I just have very low expectations for kind of 
I don't know, justice to be done. Or There's just so many kind of like various cases like this where it's like more heartbreaking and more disappointing to follow than not. And that's not the case for me with a lot of news stories. But I actually hadn't been following the Rittenhouse trial too, too closely. And when the verdict came out, I think it was on Thursday or Friday, I was just like, of course, of course, this is what happened. So it was interesting to see how the shows covered it as someone who hasn't been following the the trial kind of day in and day out. And like, how are they summarizing the whole the whole event? Right. Uh-huh. How are they positioning this as newsworthy once it's all over, once this young man has been acquitted? And I found it very clunky and very disorganized without a very clear objective. And I think that is kind of my my issue or kind of the the angle that I want to explore as the shows talked about this issue. Case in point, take a listen to this intro from Meet the Press, where Chuck Todd talks about the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse in the Kenosha shooting, as well as gun violence and political polarization more broadly. This past week, we got more evidence of just how divided we become as a country. On Friday, Wisconsin jury found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty on all counts of shooting three men, two fatally, at a Kenosha protest last summer, sparked by the shooting of a black man by a white police officer. At the same time, in Georgia right now, there are three men uh, who are on trial, uh, charged with an unprovoked killing of a black man, Ahmad Arbery. And earlier in the week, just two House Republicans joined Democrats in censuring Republican Congressman Paul Gosar and stripping him of his committee assignments. After Gosar posted an animated video showing him killing his colleague, Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. All three episodes, the trials at the intersection of race, guns, and self-defense, and the GOP, at least the House GOP's near unanimous dismissal of violent imagery against a Democrat, are further evidence of a fraying America. Gosar is a stretch there. That is a huge stretch. Right? That's that's how I felt. I was just like, you're pulling in these very different moments to try to find a theme, and it's so loose that like it automatic, automatically made me very skeptical of kind of what they were going to be able to accomplish to begin with. Yeah. Like you're going to talk about racial justice and guns and self-defense and republican dismissal of violence like i like it just felt like they were grasping for straws here right it it just feels very forced yeah and it's worth noting like these are criminal cases these are not supreme court cases that will serve as the foundation for precedent legal precedent that affects every american everywhere forever like these are criminal court cases fine i mean to note that like they're they're steeped in the specifics of their individual moments well yeah i I mean absolutely i think you can talk about those differences and i'm going to talk a little bit about on this week they really did go into the differences between the kenosha case and actually i'm not sure if i pulled the clip but in on this week they did spend a decent amount of time talking about how self-defense is was used very differently in the Wisconsin case as it's going to be used in the Georgia case because they're very different moments, very different actions and environments. And so claiming self-defense is going to be a lot harder, specifically in the murder of Ahmad Aubrey. Anyway, the whole point is like it just 
set the, my expectations so low because I was just like, you're making such loose connections here that you're going to be able to accomplish very little. In comparison, take a listen to this summary of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial by Terry Moran. She's the ABC News senior national correspondent, and she covered the the trial for ABC. Kyle Rittenhouse won this case on the witness stand, and he was superbly prepared by his defense lawyer, Mark Richards. The defense staged two mock trials with mock juries before the, before the trial, one where Kyle Rittenhouse did testify, one where he didn't. The answer was clear. And so that uh, questioning was structured to right at the Wisconsin law of self-defense. The defense barely mentioned the Second Amendment in this case. This was not a crusade. This was trying to get the jury to focus, and they did. I watched them. There were, there were no dawdling, no nodding off. They were very focused. And what the defense gave them was not a political case, but a case under Wisconsin's law of def- self-defense. And that's what they asked for during jur- jury deliberations. First thing, please give each of us a copy of the law of self-defense. And then they went through that video evidence, knowing a lot of evidence that a lot of people around the country don't know. There are a lot of guns going off that night. And, and they came to this conclusion. It was not a crusade in that courtroom. It was a trial. That's excellent. Right. That, that's an actual an examination of what was observed in the trial itself, as opposed to kind of this grand statement of how it's connected to something else that it's not connected to. Yeah, or that in particular, the people making the decisions did not, they were not making decisions on those major issues and topics. And that wasn't their job to make those decisions. They were supposed to focus and they did focus. Yeah, and I thought that on this week when they did kind of explore the role of race in this trial, they did it with a lot more tact than what we'll see on Meet the Press in a little bit. Take a listen to this clip with Brian Pitts. He's the ABC News chief national correspondent. And Byron, in this trial, all involved in the case were white. Rittenhouse, the men who died. But this case intensified the debate over racial justice and the legal system itself. Martha, that's absolutely true. And for many people, it's not a debate. It's a cold, hard reality that in America, there's one justice system if you're white and wealthy. There is another if you are poor and a person of color. Study after study shows that black men are arrested more often, uh, convicted more often, and sentenced to longer sentences than white men accused of the same crime. And the same is tr- holds true in discipline in schools that disparity. And Martha, here's a a study I I think that that speaks to this case and the concerns about this case. According to the FBI, a a fatal shooting where the the shooter is, is white and the victim is black, Three times more likely, that's ruled to be justifiable if, the, if both parties were, were, um, were white. And so I think for most reasonable people, and most surveys would bear this out, that few people, reasonable people would believe that if a 17-year-old black boy with an AR-15 showed up in Kenosha, Wisconsin at night, killed two people and injured a third, that that black boy would have been treated the same way by police or by the legal justice system. So I appreciated this because I feel like there's been a lot of clumsy coverage talking about the racial discontent after Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted, recognizing that other teenage black boys are shot and killed by police 
when sometimes they have toy guns, as in the case of Tamir Rice, yeah. right? And so the treatment of a white teenager with a gun who actually shot and killed people versus what is the black experience is, is vastly different. And But I thought Brian Pitts here does a really good job of kind of showing that like, this is well documented. This is not just like anecdotal that, you know, there are, you know, reports and and findings even from our top law enforcement agencies find this to be true, right? Yes. And so it's not a matter of just saying like, black people are hurt and mad and angry, but it's saying, this is what people observe in black communities. And this is what our actual justice system reflects as well, right? And it just goes to show like, a little bit of data to qualify the real experience that people are, you know, feeling makes the case that much stronger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree. This is this is really, really good coverage. And it makes me reflect on a few things. Uh, first of all, that this week consistently on legal cases gets is it the, right. Yeah, it gets it right. And it's so interesting to think about which Sunday shows get which topics right. Mm-hmm. And this it's week, true. when it comes to legal issues, they they always, particularly when they're like active trials going on, they do a really, really good job. It's a real strength for that show and that network. The other thing that I want to reflect on is that, yes, I heard this argument as well by, you know, some folks on my Sunday shows that I covered this week. And I think it is a common refrain and frustration for sure. But... I feel like what's missing is it seems to be that the statement is this white 17-year-old got treated with deference and respect and and the benefit of the doubt throughout the whole process and was potentially treated with kid gloves or whatever you want to call it, right, by the whole system and ultimately was able to make it through this really trying situation of, of being on trial for murder and then being acquitted. And certainly there were a lot of funds that helped them do that to stage two mock trials before you actually do a real trial. I mean, that's hugely expensive to do all that. But he was able to get through it. And then they're saying, look, this isn't the case with, for example, a young black boy of of 17. But I think what's missing is it should be the case, right? Like, it should be the case. Like, this Rittenhouse verdict, a lot of people see it as this isn't fair. He should have gone to prison. But if the argument is, well... He was treated in a way that was not the way. And he had it. And in like a better way. It's like, well. A really robust defense system and fundraising. Right. It's like, shouldn't the opposite be true? Shouldn't it be, oh, every black boy should get what Rittenhouse got? Like, this is what justice looks like. And so, therefore, we should all get this, not Rittenhouse should go to jail. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I hear you. I mean, I think. I'd be curious to read that FBI report. I would assume that white young men, white boys are not even getting arrested at the same rates as black boys. But but yeah, I hear what you're saying that if like if this is the best defense that money can buy, like why doesn't why can't every young person of color have access to that? Right, right. But I think that what makes that complicated is what this situation was, right? Where the protest was, what it was about, and then all these issues about, you know, him carrying around a gun and maybe looking for trouble, but then you've got these laws that allow that to happen. So it's all mixed up with a lot of, a lot of issues. 
Yeah. And but like I said, in general, I think this week did a good job about talking about the case, its weaknesses, its strengths in a way that helps you kind of understand how they could get to this acquittal. Exactly. In comparison, I felt like on Meet the Press, it was more about how does this acquittal reflect on America? How are people feeling about this acquittal? Mm -hmm. Right. And you see this in the interview that Chuck Todd has with Senator John Tester. John Tester is a Democratic senator from the state of Montana. And in this interview, Chuck Todd focuses a lot on the question of gun rights, gun ownership and gun access. Let me start with the fallout of the Rittenhouse trial. Uh, And I think you actually can provide a unique perspective. You come from a rural state. You come from a one that would, I think, collectively describe themselves as a pro-Second Amendment state. There are a lot of so-called pro-Second Amendment folks who are hailing this as a victory. Uh, Explain that divide as you see it. So, look, I wasn't in Kenosha and I certainly wasn't in the courtroom either. But but we are a nation of laws and there was a trial and, and, the, and, the, and the jury issued its verdict. I can't imagine the pain that the families have gone through that, that lost loved ones in this incident. But nonetheless, I think we need to respect uh, what, what the jury has done here and uh, respect the decision. Uh, protest, but I would say protest peacefully if you're going to protest. What's the uh, issue here in your mind? Is it bad laws? No, I mean, look, I mean, I think um, I think everybody has the right to keep and bear arm law abiding citizens. And I believe that everybody has the right to protect themselves. I think the debate on this whole issue, and like I said, I wasn't there, so I can't tell you what actually happened. But but the truth is, the whole debate is, was it self-defense or was it uh, provocation? So I I found it really interesting that Chuck Todd decided to focus so much on gun access for his show today. I think Yes, that is one angle to explore, right? The fact that he was a 17-year-old with an AK-47, I believe, or some other extremely dangerous weapon as a minor. But I, I don't think he properly contextualized the increase of guns in America or in certain states or in Wisconsin or if Kyle Rittenhouse is a reflection of kind of what people have access to now or is he an anomaly and the laws are written in a way that makes it then permissible when something happens in those instances but maybe he he's not it's not a common thing that 17 year olds would have access to these weapons like i don't think he put in the work to have a robust conversation about gun ownership and gun access so agreed john tester here can kind of take it in any way where you know he's from montana and you know he's pro second amendment you know pro law-abiding citizens being safe gun owners i agree i think chuck todd here was fishing for an interesting conversation but like you said he didn't really put the work into specifically like laying the path for that conversation and expected tester to fill in the blanks and he didn't right Tester was just ready to reaffirm whatever he wants to affirm. Oh, everyone has a right to protect themselves. People have a right to bear arms. You know, the the criminal justice system we have to respect. It's like, these are all bromides. Like, this is not an actual discussion. And if Chuck Todd had done a better job of laying that path out, then he could have maybe gotten to that Exactly, and that's why I feel so frustrated with that kind of, like, weak opening that he had. 
where it's like you could have chosen an angle like you should have you could have chosen a lane to explore yes. the story yes and you didn't right. you like connected these you know separate instances these hot political moments that are very separate and try to you know tie them together but then it makes the individual interviews weaker and you see this in this next clip with john tester where chuck todd is noting the increase on open carry laws and self-defense laws but again like without the context what could be a really and not damning like damning to john tester but a really you know heavy important question to explore is just kind of another like weird little angle we've also seen a redefining of these laws in the last 20 years there's two uh, trends that are um, all over the all over the country more open carry laws and more laws written essentially to allow self-defense to be used to defend using your firearm how much do those laws do you think contribute um, to the situation that we saw in Kenosha? Look, Chuck, uh, I, I'm in a, a situation where uh, for 20 years I made my living with a gun as a custom butcher shop operator. Every day I got up and, and I used a gun as a tool, which is what it is. It has to be used responsibly. If it's not used responsibly, you can see a lot of bad things that can happen with it. And I can tell you some of the laws that have put out in the last uh, few years uh, are laws that I think enable people that uh, are criminals, not people who are law-abiding citizens. And, and quite honestly, as a gun owner, as somebody who has, you know, fewer guns that I want, uh, uh, the fact is, is that we need to have uh, laws that protect law-abiding citizens to be able to have guns. But we also, when they're used improperly, uh, we need to enforce a law. The other thing I would say is this. There was a background check law that was put up a few years back mm -hmm. to keep guns out of criminals and court adjudicated mentally ill folks and terrorists. That bill did not pass. And I still can't figure out why, because background checks are key to law abiding citizens being able to keep their guns. Couldn't there have been some analysis here about how many states have more open carry laws or, you know, how they've increased in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years or, you know, what Wisconsin was like 20 years ago versus now? Like, it just seems to me like you're stating that there is a change in, like the environment has changed for gun owners and you're asking Senator Tester if he thinks that's like good or bad, <laughs> right? But you're not giving the audience the specifics to kind of be able to judge and analyze Tester's answer. Right. Well, I think I think absolutely there's not enough specifics to the data here. But fundamentally, this gets back to another topic that we keep harping on again and again, which is you have on someone with political power. Whenever you have someone on with political power, the question should be about how are they using that power? So it shouldn't be like, he shouldn't be asking him, quote, how much do these laws do you think contribute to the situation that we saw in Kenosha, question mark, like, end quote. Like that, that's a question for an analyst, or that's a question for you to answer, right. Chuck Todd, or for the show to answer. Like, you know whether those laws were used or affected. We know they were, right? The, the, the kid was open carrying, Rittenhouse was open carrying, and he used the self-defense, like defense, so, yes, that did contribute 
to what happened and what the verdict was. We know that. So why are you asking that question? We know that is the answer. So what is the appropriate question to ask Senator John Tester, someone with power, political power? He's a senator, one of only 100 senators. So what is the appropriate question to ask someone like that related to these issues, right? How about what are you doing to restrict open carry laws? Or do you agree with such and such person's law to reduce the self-defense use? Or, you know, whatever. Like, there are plenty of questions related to laws, related to what John Tester himself could be or should be expected to do about this topic, rather than just asking him whether this contributed. Stop treating him as a subject matter expert. Stop treating these people with political power as subject matter experts and treat them as people with power and authority who need to be held in check and pushed and prodded to either do their job or to change the way they're doing their job or to be held accountable for the job they did. One thousand percent. In an interview with Senator Kevin Kramer, Chuck Todd talks to him and he's a Republican senator from the state of Pennsylvania. Apparently, he's like the ranking member of like the Transportation Committee, and he like wrote a significant part of the infrastructure bill that was passed. And like those were really good questions, right? Because he knew what was kind of developed in the bill and, you know, kind of what the needs are and whatever. Like it's a good example of not someone just with power, but someone who kind of helped develop like the policy itself, right? Mm hmm. But similarly to the interview with Senator John Tester, Chuck Todd decides to ask Senator Kramer about open carry laws and what their implications could be. Again, not a subject matter expert. The rise in open carry laws and in stand your ground laws, um, has it, is it sending uh, the wrong message of almost encouraging folks to use their weapon in public places? No, I think it sends the message that you have a right to defend yourself against increasing violence. And again, let's get back to supporting our police officers. Let's get back to supporting solid laws that uh, that protect innocent people so that innocent people don't feel like they have to always protect themselves. That said, they do have the right to, to uh, defend them, themselves, especially in their own homes, which is largely what some of the laws you're talking about are, are about, uh, particularly stand your ground. Right. But the public spaces, do you think there's a point where this goes too far? Stand your ground at home, I think, is, is one thing. Stand your ground anywhere sure. else in the community. It seems that expansiveness is what's got some folks troubled. I don't know, Chuck, there are an awful lot of stories about people who uh, are grateful that the person next to them uh, at, at a public space was caring when uh, when there wasn't anybody else there to protect them against another violent uh, criminal. I don't think this is so much about guns as it is about the heart of people. And what drives me crazy about this is that this crappy question leads to even a crappier response by Senator Kramer that is not like has zero foundation in facts and data in terms of. Lots like a stories. stranger with a gun is going to save you. It's so frustrating that this is like seen as like a legitimate response when it's literally not based in reality. I just I can't get over how weak will these questions are. Like, is it sending the wrong message? That's the question. Or it seems it's what's got some folks troubled. What folks troubled? Is that it? That's not even a question. 
it's so easy to brush these things off, and Senator Kramer does brush them off. Exactly. Because there's no data behind them. There's no, like, there's no quotes of, of who's saying that they're troubled, and, and should we be worried that these some folks who we've never heard of are troubled about this thing that hasn't really been even explained very well to the audience? I understand where Chuck Todd is trying to take this conversation, but, but he's doing a really bad job He's doing a really it. bad job, and, like... You don't accidentally get your way there, right? right? Like you don't stumble into this like analysis of gun ownership in America and its effect on different populations in terms of white people and black people. Like unless maybe you're talking to a professor, but you're not. You're not talking to a subject matter expert even though you're asking those sorts of questions. You're asking a Republican senator who like agrees with all these laws. So just overall like i said very frustrating and it just it felt like this was a big trial it was big news when the verdict came out and here we have the sunday news shows like or at least one of them having zero idea what to do about it i will say that there was one kristen soltis anderson was on meet the press today she's a republican pollster she used to be on abc news quite a bit and then i think her contract didn't get extended and then she was on fox news quite a bit i think this is the first time i've ever seen her on meet the press but she talked about how depending on where you're getting your news you got vastly different coverage of the trial and the verdict and like no one got all the details of the right of the trial in their coverage and so your understanding of it is very different depending on where you live and kind of what news you watch so i thought that was very interesting so i will give meet the press that type of um praise for having chris and solstice anderson on to be able to kind of give that context but other than that just very frustrating and it just i don't know it just reinforces that like just don't feel like following some of these the coverage of some of these trials if like they just can't get not just the basics right but their objectives clear very frustrating yeah i'm i'm so frustrated particularly at this last question i mean i i feel like i'm stuck on on this question to kevin kramer because it is a conversation worth having right this was a dangerous situation right two people died and if we're going to be having protests and people are going to be and you know feel like they want to bring guns to it that can be a dangerous situation right as we see, people people can die. And there's a question to be asked, like, how common is that situation, for one, right? Like, is this something we're going to see, like, 10 times a year, a 1,000 times a year? Like, those are two very different questions. If this is just something that happens once every six or eight years, but we have, you know, tens of thousands of protests over that time that this doesn't happen at, then maybe it's not an issue that needs laws, right? I mean, that's what we're we're here for. This is a we're talking to lawmakers on this on these shows. So maybe it's not an issue. Maybe it is an issue. How do we determine if it is or isn't an issue, right? And also, the question is, well, maybe people aren't going to die at every protest, but it may change the nature of those protests or the number of those protests or whether those protests are actually effective or, or it turns people away or turns people off or concerns the neighborhood that people are walking around with guns and ends up hurting business at local restaurants because there's people walking around with the guns like there's all sorts of issues beyond people dying that potentially these laws could be quote unquote as chuck Todd's encouraging folks to use their weapon in public places but none of that conversation is really happening here and it's not clear again from this one instance whether 
it's something that we really should be that concerned about versus other issues like inflation that is affecting everybody or other issues like the 100,000 people who died of opioids during the pandemic or overdoses. So anyway, it feels like the important conversations just are not happening. They're not happening. Even when they're touching the topic lightly. It's like they're holding it with like their, you know, kind of pointer and thumb, right? Like just like pinching at it, but not really holding it, not really grasping and wrapping their arms around it in any meaningful way. Yep. It's like actually the way you're describing it. It's like those um, money in the machine to try to get the toy and it's got the grabber and it comes down. Yeah. And it grabs the... the It grabs the little teddy bear and it starts pulling, but it just has no no force. You're never exactly. going to get that teddy bear up. Ripping you off. So maybe we'll find that conversation or make it in other places. That takes us to our dialogue challenge. You, listener, can have those conversations. You don't have to wait for the Sunday shows to do them. Do it over Thanksgiving. Spice it up. It reminds me of what people say to writers. You know, this is... Um, what is it called? NaNoWriMo? Like, it's like the National Novel Writing Month where people try to write a novel in oh, one right, month. Oh, right, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for people who write novels, they say, you know, write the novel you want to read, you know? Write the novel you wish was in the world. And so it's kind of like, have the conversation that you wish was on the Sunday shows. You can have it yourself. Maybe you could even put it on your podcast <laughs> <laughs> that's a great dialogue challenge <laughs> in the meantime you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can follow me at bstidal on twitter you can follow the show at polylogcast and you can follow me on twitter at sodonaomi underscore thanks everyone and as we said have a wonderful thanksgiving holiday happy thanksgiving we are so grateful for all of our loyal loyal listeners and all the messages we get they're just they're great and it's good to know that there are other people out there who appreciate the conversations that we do and are trying to replicate them themselves and are always demanding more from their sunday show experience and political dialogue absolutely we will be with you again without delay next sunday well we'll be talking to you then and then you'll You'll get it on Monday, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Talk then. Bye. Bye.